Philippians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 2 today. And, and we're going to start today with uh, this little section is, is a little personal note that, that uh, Paul adds here in this letter to the church at Philippi. Now, from the very beginning, I've told you there, there's a few themes that we see through the book of Philippians. And joy is one of those big themes that weaves its way through this book. Um, but also unity. And unity in joy. They kind of are, they interact and they work together. And what we're going to see here today is, is that there was some sort of a disagreement going on between two people at the church in Philippi. All right, and that's what he highlights here today. He actually calls out a couple people by name and, and discusses this little disagreement that's been going on for, for quite some time. And Paul, if you remember, he's writing this from prison in Rome, and he's writing to this church in Philippi, which is in Greece. It's a long way away, um, and he's way over here in Rome. He could have just ignored it. He could have gotten news of this argument and disagreement that's going on and could have said, you know what, they'll figure it out. But instead, what he does, being the pastor that he is, the apostle that he is, he says, okay, I need to address this. I need to help them work through this. So I'm going to write this down in this letter. And, and obviously, this disagreement had been going on long enough that it ends up traveling by foot. <laughs> um, the information from Greece all the way to Rome and all the way back to Greece. I mean, it, this has been happening for a while. It's not just a, a quick little argument that somebody had. And Paul is, is going to address it head on. And it really does show us his heart for the people of the church. And, and when relationships aren't reconciled, when, when you don't work it out, when you don't figure it out, a little brokenness always remains. All right? In some cases, big brokenness remains. When relationships aren't the way they're supposed to be, you carry it with you. And you can carry it with you forever in your life. But that's not the way we're called to live. It's not the best way to live. We're actually called to be people of peace. People that live truly in peace. All right? So some of what we're going to talk today about today might hit a little close to home. All right? But don't put up your defenses. Think through it. Pray through it. And let's see what God wants to, to, to do here today. All right? So let's start off with the first two verses. Verse um, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, and verse 3. Here's what it says. It says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. All right, now if you're just reading that on your own, you're just going through the Bible and reading the Bible, you read that verse and you're like, what in the world is going on here? I have no idea. Usually we just kind of skip right past those kinds of verses and we just keep on going to something else that makes a little more sense to us. But I want to help you unpack this a little bit and, and realize what's happening. So he first off, he's talking to these two women, right? Euodia, that's quite a name for you. Syntyche, also a name that hasn't seemed to last into popularity, right? He says, these two women have a disagreement. And so what he says is, hey, I want you to come to some place of agreement. I want you to get along. I want you to work this out. I want you to be reconciled in the Lord. It's important that you work through this. Now, I want you to notice this also. 
this disagreement is between two Christians. Okay? These are two Christians, part of the body of Christ, part of this church together. It says there, their names are written in the book of life. Okay? They're believers. And, and these two women, we, we really have no idea what the argument's about. We, there's not some other passage of scripture that I can cross-reference for you to say, oh, see, this is what they were arguing over, or this was the disagreement. We don't know. It was like the color of the chairs in the church. Like, I, I don't know. We have no idea. We just know that it's this ongoing kind of brokenness in their relationship between the two of them. And, and as Paul finds out about it, you know, it, it probably, we talked about how Epaphroditus um, was the, the man from Philippi who came and brought the letter and the financial gift to Paul. And I, the way I picture it is, you know, Paul's there in Rome under house arrest, chained to an imperial guard. And Epaphroditus comes and he brings this gift to Paul and, and he sits down and they start talking about the church. And Paul, loving these people, knowing these people, he's asking Epaphroditus, hey, what about this person? What about that person? What's going on with them? What's, what about them? And he gets to Euodia. Oh, how's Euodia doing? And Epaphroditus is like, well, you know, Syntyche and Euodia, they're both, you know, big personalities and there's this thing going on. And he's like, what? He's like, yeah, and it's been going on for a while. This disagreement, it just keeps, keeps going on. And one of them sits on this side of the church and the other one sits on that side of the church. And it's like, you can't invite them to the same potlucks. And it's like, this is hard. Okay, that's what's, that's what's happening. And what we see Paul do is he gets this information and he writes us back. I want you to notice this in verse three because it's a little confusing. And in most of your Bibles, in my Bible, I'm, I'm preaching from the ESV, and in this translation, if you look at that phrase in, in verse 3, it says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, um, and then mine has a little footnote, and at the bottom it says, or loyal syzygous, all right, probably what this actually means, syzygous is that word that can also be translated as true companion, or Bond fellow, I think, is like Old King James translation, right? Uh, it, it's, it's actually probably a name. It's a, it's a person's name that's being described here. It's not just randomly, hey, true companion, somebody jump in and help these women. What it's most likely is, is it's actually this name, Syzygous. Again, I think that the translators are like, that's a weird name. That can't be somebody's name. Somebody named their kid Syzygous? Really? I don't know, but th this is what's probably going on. I think what Paul's doing is he calls out this particular person, probably another leader at the church, and says, let's see, who can help them sort through this? Because if they can't work it out themselves, they could use some help. So he says, hey, Syzygous, help them out. Now, here's what I want us to talk about a little bit here. Um, the Bible gives us guidance on how to handle disagreements especially disagreements between Christians, people that are both part of the family of faith, all right? And, and it's important that we know what it is that the Bible teaches us um, because here's what happens. We live life and we grow up in our families of origin and we each have our unique experiences of life and, and we find ways to cope in the world. We find ways to function in the world. We find ways to interact with other people. And we build these ways. We build these methods. We build our, our personality, our character, who we are. 
But what happens is, as we become Christians, or as we mature in our Christian faith, and we start digging into the Bible, what we find is there's certain things that we do that don't line up with what we find in the Bible. At that point, you have two choices. You can either say, well, my way is a pretty good way, and I've made it this far in life with this way, so I choose my way, and I'm going to reject that way. Or, as Christians, and you know what I'm going to tell you to do, as Christians we say, ooh, this is the way I do this. This is how I handle these things. This is how I think about this. But this is what the scripture tells me. This is what God has spoken. I better change. Because what the Bible also tells us is, Jesus said, look, my word's not changing. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. That's what he says. So you're kind of up against something that's not going to move. And you can say, but my way's pretty good. It, you know, it's, it's got me this far. Or you can say, mm, I'm going to have to change my way. I can't do what I've always done. This is my comfort zone. This is how I do it. But this isn't what I'm called to. And when it comes to disagreements, I think all of us tend to have a few little things here and there where we're like, this is how I do it. This is how I've always done it. And you get into scripture and you're like, oh, I can't keep doing it this way. All right, and that, that's what we find as we go through here. Because what we find in the Bible is that we as Christians are called to unity. We aren't supposed to let these disagreements and, and, and disputes go on forever and always. We're supposed to always be trying to bring each other closer together. We're trying to keep the family as one unit. And there's all kinds of things in this life that are going to always try to tear us apart. Right? We've seen this as a, uh, from a political standpoint in a nation. We've got things being ripped apart. In the church, it's not supposed to be that way. We're supposed to be ha- uh, unified. We're supposed to be together. And we're supposed to draw each other together. And, and we see that over and over in the Bible. We're not just called, we're, we're called not to just get along, but even a step further than that, we're actually called to love each other. And we know this as Christians. We're called to love each other. Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you, that's the the family of Christ, you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And he goes even a step further with verse 35 and says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if... You have a love for one another. So this love that we have, this unity that we have, it's actually a signifying feature of who we are as the people of God. And when Christians are at odds with each other and will not reconcile with each other, we're, we're, we're presenting to the rest of the world around us something that we shouldn't be presenting. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to love one another. So what should we do if we end up having a dispute with somebody at church? Somebody that is a fellow Christian. What happens if we get in an argument with them? Like I said, do we start sitting on other sides, opposite sides of the church? Guys, if this is a little church. You can't go very far. <laughs> do we change life groups? Oh, I can't be with them anymore. Do we find a new church altogether? All right. And, and I know that kind of sounds crazy. People do that stuff, okay? You find out, you ask somebody, hey, why'd you leave that church? Oh, well, do you know so-and-so? We didn't get along. And so, no, 
That's not what we're supposed to do. We're called to work it out. We're called to work it out. Jesus, um, in Matthew chapter 5, he, he's pretty extreme. Jesus is always pretty extreme. I, I hope you recognize that about Jesus. It's extreme in a good way, but he's extreme. And he calls people out on things all the time. And one of the things that he says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, look, when you're coming to worship and you come to a church service and you've come to the, the altar in worship and you're, you're coming to bring a sacrifice or an offering to the altar, and if you come there in this place of worship and you get to this spot of worship and you're ready to, to leave this at the altar and all of a sudden it pops into your mind, ooh, I've got a disagreement with so-and-so or I haven't worked this out with this person or this person has something against me or I have this thing about somebody else. You know what Jesus says there in Matthew 5? He says, leave it. Leave what you had at the altar. Get up. Leave the temple. Go find that person. Be reconciled to them first. And then come back and do offer your offering to God and do your act of worship. He says, don't even, don't even let the rest of your life move forward, even things like worshiping God, until this is taken care of. You can't leave these things hanging out there. Now, let me say this too. I, I probably should have said this at the beginning. Um, it's good to have these kinds of teachings and these all church discussions before you have this problem, okay? And, and I do want you guys to know very clearly right now, I didn't get a phone call this week from somebody saying, by the way, this is what's going on, all right? If that's happening right now, if there's a couple of you that are at odds, I don't know about it, okay? So I'm just up here preaching the word and taking us through it. Um, so nobody's talking behind your back to me and that's not why we're doing this. But it's good to know these things. It's, it's, this is actually the best time to have those conversations, right? Learn this stuff when you don't need it <laughs> so that you have it when you do need it, okay? So everybody calm down now. Nobody's gotta be mad. We're still moving forward, okay? So if we're called to work it out as Christians, the question then is, well, how? How are we supposed to work it out? How do we do that? How does the Bible actually, because we all know how to deal with conflict. We all have our ways that we deal with it. I'm not saying all of our ways are good ways or are biblical ways, but we all have our ways. But how is it that the Bible teaches us to handle conflict? And when we talk about conflict, it's interesting because it's one of the places where you really see a difference in, in people's upbringing, their family, their, their whatever background they come from. Um, when, before Aaron and I were married, Aaron's my wife, you don't know that. Um, before, before she and I were married, the very first time, very first time she ever met my family, she came with me to visit my family. We all had, I have, I have two younger sisters, my mom and my dad, and um, I, I bring my girlfriend to meet the family, okay? And we're all sitting around the dinner table. We have dinner together. Everything's going great. This is, everything's good, you know? And at the very end of dinner, we're like clearing up the table and everything. My sister and my dad start having a, a, a conversation, a lively conversation, you might say, um, a discussion that I won't go into today, but that, that kind of starts like ramping up a little bit. You know, and first it's my sister saying this, my dad saying that, and then it takes another level and another, and it keeps going. All right. 
Now, if you know Erin, and if you know her parents, um, you realize they're very calm. They're very reserved, very even keeled, just good people. All right. My side of the family, <laughs> they're good people, but they're a little more uh, vibrant, might we say, um, expressive, uh, loud, just, just plain loud. And so some of the conversation, as the conversation start go, starts going, it starts getting bigger and bigger and louder. And Aaron and I, my other sister, my mom, we've already left the table, okay? We're, not, we're in the living room or something now, but they're still at the table going through with having this interaction, right? And Aaron's like, turns to me and she's like, is something wrong? Like, what, should we do something? What's, and I'm like, what? They're just, they're just having a conversation. It's like, what? This is, this is what we do. This is, this is the way they are, you know? It's, it's no big deal. But for her, it's a total different realm. If, if, if voices are loud and people are animated, to her, it's like, whoa, this is a really big deal. But to me, I'm like, that's just dinner, <laughs> right? That's just the way it is. And we have, all of us have these, these different backgrounds that we bring into the church because we're all come from these different places. There are some families that are more verbal than others. We've got, there are some families that if you get in a disagreement with somebody, they just cut them off, cut them out of the family. You show up at a family reunion and somebody took your hot dog and you're like, forget it. I'm never talking to them again. And boom, they're gone. With some families, there are arguments that go back decades and they don't even remember what it was that really caused the whole thing. And they've built this list of things that caused it maybe, but nobody even knows, right? Some people... They don't get loud, they go silent. Some people deal with conflict by just, I'm not talking to them for the next few weeks or months or whatever. That's it. And when I cool down, then okay, then we'll talk again. That's how some people try to handle it. Some people deal with things head on. Other people avoid it at all costs. Hey, we're in a disagreement. I just, I, well, I can't touch it. Can't talk about it. Can't deal with it. But no matter what your background is, we're all adopted into one family as the family of God. We're all brought into this family and God has given us some directions on how to work things out. In Matthew 18, Jesus is, is teaching here and here's what he says. Matthew 18, verse 15, he says, if your brother sins against you, sins, notice it's sin, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, you've got to be careful when you cross-reference different passages of scripture. Now, specifically Matthew 18, he's talking about sin. All right, and the disagreement that these ladies are having at the church of Philippi doesn't, it's not sin. It's a disagreement, but it's not a sin issue. If it was a direct sin issue of, hey, they're doing something wrong that's sinful and nobody's saying anything about it, we have that actually in Corinthians, Paul would have directly said, no, this is sin, this has to stop. That's not what's going on. It's a disagreement, okay? And so it's a, it's a little different here. Um, but, but here's the thing. What he says in that, I think the concept is still useful for dealing with just even disagreements. The first thing that he describes there in Matthew 18 is, start off by just talking directly to the person. 
That a lot of times can fix most stuff with a lot of disagreements. Because what happens for some people is they think, oh, I want to process it, is what they call it, with other people behind the backs of the people that I need to process it with. It's gossip, right? And so they're like, do you know what so-and-so did or what they said? I can't believe this. And then they go to the next person. Oh, can you believe that and this? And pretty soon it's poisoning groups of people. And, and the Bible says, no, no, no. If you've got an issue like that, first off, go to the person and, and talk, try to talk that out. And he says there, hey, if, if that's the way it works, I mean, even in the sin issue, if someone sinned against you and you can come to them and they're like, I did that. I'm sorry. I repent of that. I don't want to do that. He says, you've, you've regained that relationship. You've regained the brother. That's, that's the first place for us to go is to talk with that person about it. Now, uh, as you follow through in Matthew 18, you see it's just kind of a phased approach. What he says is, hey, if you can't do, if you can't do it that way, then try to bring somebody else that may be a, you know, a neutral third party that can help you process it. And sometimes that's what's needed. That's what was needed in Philippi. That's why he calls on Syzygos to say, hey, Syzygos, step in. Talk to these ladies. Let's make this work, right? And it's just, you can kind of go in these, these bigger circles to make that happen. It's best, obviously, to try to work it out with the person one-on-one, but if that, if that can't happen, it's not wrong to ask for help. And, and it's, it's okay for you to recognize, hey, I don't do great with conflict. The way that it worked in my family was if you said something I didn't like, I punched you in the mouth. That didn't go over real well at church. I'm not sure why. So I want to do something different. <laughs> so help me figure out how this works. All right? Because here's what we have to recognize. We need these tools because when you get a group of people together, no matter who those people are, this, this is international, this is interracial, this is intergenerational. You get a group of people together, you're going to have disagreements, you're going to have misunderstandings, and, and you're going to have mistakes that are going to happen. It's okay. We're people, all right? We're people. Even as Christians, we're people. And people are different. No two humans are identical, not even twins. We all have different experiences. God has built uniqueness into our world. You're all snowflakes. You know, you all have your own ways of doing things, right? And we're to celebrate that. But we also know that people are the same. We have our differences, we have our uniqueness, but we also have some similarities. We have shared traits across all humanity each being made in the image of God. And all people are under the authority of God. And there's certain things that are put in place that are the same forever and always. But no matter how different we are, Christians share a set of basic beliefs, beliefs that don't change. And outside of those, though, there's a lot of latitude. And so you're going to have a, a lot of difference in all of that. And sometimes it's those things, the little things, that can rub us the wrong way and we find ourselves in a disagreement with a brother or sister. But what we're taught in scripture is we are not to let the disagreements separate us from each other. We've got to hold on to that part. We've got to recognize disagreements are going to come. Hurt feelings are going to happen. We're going to do that kind of stuff. We're going to work on those things. But we can't let the disagreements separate us. We can't do it. Divisions in the church don't belong. Now, I'm not pretending that there aren't divisions in the church. <laughs> They're there. I understand that. But they just don't belong. 
And it's our responsibility to aim for unity. We always want to aim for unity. We won't always hit it. And, and there's been times I've had disagreements with people in churches, okay? And I wish I could say, and I was always right. But I wasn't. <laughs> this stuff happens. We, we get into those disagreements. But we have to remember, as he tells the, the church here in Philippi, he, has to, he tells us, look, our names and their names are written in the book of life. And we've got to keep that perspective. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's where then he goes on in verse 4 of Philippians 4. And then he comes right after this and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. What does he immediately turn to here? He says, look, you guys got to get along. Your names are written in the book of life. Don't let these disagreements separate you. Be unified and rejoice. Rejoice. Instead of getting hung up on those things, rejoice. Now, here's the interesting thing about the word rejoice. Rejoicing is finding joy again. Okay? It's, it's going back to joy. Rejoicing. Get back to it. Rejoice. Joy resurfaces through the, this, this letter many times. It's one of the, the shared attributes that all Christians are supposed to have. If you don't know this yet, as a Christian, you're supposed to be a person of joy. There should be joy in you. Now, joy is different than happiness. Happiness kind of comes and goes depending on our circumstances. But joy is deeper. It's, it's underlying everything. It's part of the foundational part of who we are. We're people who have our names written in the book of life. What that means is, look, this life, this world might be bad. It might be hard. It might be rough. In fact, many times it's going to be. Suffering is actually, that's the normal part of life. We're sometimes surprised when we suffer or when we struggle or when something goes wrong. Guys, that's actually, that's normal life. The part that we rejoice and we look toward is the fact that someday all things are going to be made right. All sorrow is going to be washed away. Every tear, every pain, every sickness, death itself is going to be gone. That gives us joy. There may be some really rough road between now and then, but joy is for every one of us. And why does he say, again, I will say rejoice? It's because most of us don't just need a reminder. We actually need a repeated command. And this is a command. What he says is rejoice. He's like, okay, in case you're not paying attention, let me say it again. Rejoice. You have to rejoice. In the Bible, we see this happening a lot with Christians where they're, they're telling themselves to rejoice. You have to command yourself sometimes to choose joy. The psalmist in Psalm 103 says this, bless the Lord, O my soul. Why is he commanding his soul? Because his soul doesn't want to bless the Lord. But what does he say? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Remember these things and rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 32, 11, he says this, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Did he say, well, tell me how life is, how is your week? Is everything going okay? 
okay, well, then you don't have to rejoice today because, you know, it was bumpy. No, he doesn't ask. He just tells, rejoice, 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 rejoice. Isaiah 61.10, Isaiah, the prophet says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. He didn't say because I got a raise at work, because all my friends love me, because my health is spectacular. No, it wasn't any of those things. He just said, because I've been given the righteousness of God and I've got a future salvation coming my way. Now, this isn't just a a, a call to the power of positive thinking. This isn't just sending good vibes or resonating with the universe when he talks about rejoicing. It's a choice to praise God in the middle of everything and anything. It's a choice to rejoice. In verse 5, he, 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 this, actually this verse is kind of an interesting break here. And we'll read the first half of it. After he tells them, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Um, in some translations, that word reasonableness is translated as gentleness. When, when our relationships get disrupted... When we have this brokenness between us and somebody else, we can get agitated and irritated. Have you ever noticed that? You get in a disagreement with somebody, and then all of a sudden it's like your whole, the whole day gets a little darker. It's like a, the black cloud kind of comes over you. You're like, ah, I'm not right with this person. Might be your spouse, might be your kid, might be a friend, anybody. You're just like, oh, something's not right. And what he's talking about here is, he says, listen, rejoicing has a way of kind of lightening the mood. It's amazing what happens when if you take your eyes off of the problem and what's happening, say, okay, I'm going to think about God. I'm going to look to God. I'm going to rejoice and praise God. I'm going to remember that eternity is taken care of. I'm going to remember the forgiveness and salvation that I have in him. (sighs) Okay, now I can turn back again and deal with the the problem at hand. That's helpful. And, and we become willing and reasonable to reconcile and move forward. And that's what he's saying here. You become reasonable when you're doing this. And he says, be reasonable and work it out. This is the Christian way. We're called to be reasonable people that are trying to reconcile with others. Okay? Now, the, the thought shifts here. Um, and I got I to gotta keep moving. I'm, I'm working kind of slow today. Um, the, the, the thought shifts right in the middle of this verse, okay? In verse, verse five. It, he says there at the end of verse five, he says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a, one of the, the most beautiful verses in all of the book of Philippians. And what he says here, first off, is he says, look, the Lord is at hand. Get your mind thinking about him, rejoice in him, but recognize that the Lord is at hand. Now, what does that actually mean? Is Paul saying that the Lord's coming back really soon in time? Or does it mean that he's saying the Lord is near to you? He's close in proximity to you. All right. I think that Paul, like all of the first century Christians, believed that Jesus was coming back very soon. I don't think Paul thought that it would be 2,000 years later that we'd be talking about this letter. 
I think the disciples would have been shocked to realize John being the last of the disciples still alive, you know, near the turn of the century to around 100 AD. I think John was like, where is Jesus? I cannot believe it's taken so long. All right. Um, So I think that is true. But I also know that Paul was aware of Jesus being close in in his life. and, And he was always near to him. So I think the answer is both. When he says here, the Lord is at hand, it's both. Yes, we are in the end of the end of the end and end of the times. Jesus could come back today, this afternoon. But also know that, that he's, he's around, he's near, he is close. And because he is near and because he will soon return, look at what he says. Don't overlook this, guys. If you're asleep, wake up. This is good to know. He says, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. This is one of those verses in my Bible that's underlined. For many of you, underline it, mark it, circle it, memorize it, meditate on it. Do not be anxious. The Greek word that's translated here for anxious means to be pulled in different directions. And for those of you who have dealt with anxiety before, you realize, wow, that's actually a pretty good description. Having anxiety is, you're being, you feel like you're being pulled apart. You're ripped in two. Anxiety has has really made its way to the forefront of our culture in the past couple of decades. In fact, I I think even in the 21st century, right, in the 2000s, try to think of a word that better describes the year 2000 to 2022. Better than anxiety. (laughs) I mean, that's like a good descriptor of these decades. It's it's, It's really come up. And, and we hear the conversation about the mental health crisis that's plaguing the United States. Anxiety disorder is at the top of that list. Now, anxiety's always existed in humanity. Here, he's writing a letter about it 2,000 years ago, right? It's not new, but widespread, long-term anxiety seems to be more prevalent now than ever before. I'm not going to back that statement with statistical or scientific proof. There's plenty of things that you can read on that on your own. I'm just offering my opinion of it. I'm not going to talk about why, but I want to focus on the text in front of us and specifically what it tells us to do about it. All right, so I think we can probably agree that it's here, that it's around. Why, if we want to point to social media or lots of other things we can talk about, we'll deal with that on a different day, but we know it's here. So how does the Bible tell us to deal with anxiety? What are we supposed to do about it? Because if anxiety is pulling us in different directions, what it does is it leaves us disoriented, confused, fearful, and exhausted. Anybody's actually dealt with anxiety here before? You know it is exhausting. You just feel like you're just worn out all of the time. It affects your health. It affects your relationships. It affects your work. It affects your sleep at night. It's something that's pulling us in in so many different directions. And really, an anxious life is almost the perfect opposite to an abundant life. And why did Jesus come? To bring us abundant life. So if he wants us to have an abundant life, you can guarantee that he doesn't want us to have an anxious life. They're they're on the opposite ends. And an abundant life is a peace-filled life. That's what he says here. In this verse, he says in verse 7, the peace of God, 
He says, be anxious for nothing and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, it's more than we can even understand, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this verse gives us a pathway from anxiety to peace. Anxiety to peace. Although I will say this, even if you see the pathway, you still have to walk the path to get to the destination, right? I can put a sign up here that says, this way to no anxiety. And if you have anxiety and you say, oh, there's a sign that says how to get to no anxiety and you don't take the path, it doesn't do you any good. So what is the path? The path is pretty plain. It's pretty simple. It's very churchy. You should expect this when you come to church. What does he say? He says, don't be anxious about anything, but look, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's that simple. It's that simple. What he says is the, the, the way that we go down that path is through prayer. Now, here's the thing. I, I, I really want you to get this today. I want you to know the difference between praying about something and praying through something. Okay? Stick with me here for a moment on this. There's a difference in praying about something and praying through something. And when, it's, when we're talking about anxiety, we're talking about fear, we're talking about worry, what I've experienced in my life is you can pray about it forever and always until you're blue in the face and you won't get anywhere. Or you can play, pray through it and you'll find freedom and release and healing. All right? And there's a difference between praying about something and praying through something. And as we grow in our prayer lives with God, we learn that prayer is more than just a wish list for Santa Claus. Now, I'm not saying there's a problem with writing down a prayer list. It's actually a great thing to do, okay? And if you may have that at home of here's the things I'm worried about, and I, here, here they are, and it's 234 things, and here they are, and I, I've prayed about it. There, it's done. I gave it to Santa. I dropped it in the, the mailbox to the North Pole. Like, he's going to get it. I hope he reads it. And I, that's it. And I move on about my life. That is very different than just listing out the issues, than praying through those things. Now, the things that are deep within us, and that's where anxiety lives. It's our deep-seated fears. Fear that doesn't get dealt with turns into anxiety over time. And then you get stuck in anxiety, and there's this loop that happens. Okay? The things that are deep in us, I think a lot of times the, the list just won't get to them. Not only that, also the things that are beyond our control. That's the other place that we find anxious thoughts. It's the stuff of, I can't control that. I can't fix that. I can't touch that. It's the big, big stuff and the deep, deep stuff. That's where we find anxiety most of the time. So simply acknowledging those things and even presenting them to God doesn't usually eliminate our anxiety. The kind of prayer that results in supernatural peace that he's describing here usually takes more time and effort. I know you were hoping for the shortcut. <laughs> like, no, Pastor Brett, I'd like to figure out my anxiety this afternoon, please, before 1 p.m. I'm sorry, I don't have that for you. It takes time. It takes persistence. Persistent prayer is what praying through something is. Persistent prayer sometimes takes days, weeks, years even. Now, sometimes God does just give a supernatural grace gift and boom, it's gone. He takes that pain away. But a lot of times it requires steady prayer and conversation with God to get through it. Um, 
I want to give you this illustration from the Old Testament that I think describes this praying through that I'm describing. David, King David, well, actually at the, at the time of this story, he wasn't the king yet. He'd been anointed as king, but Saul, King Saul was still the king, all right? And he uh, didn't get along. There was a disagreement with, with he and Saul. Saul wanted to kill him because he was jealous of him, and he knew that the kingdom had been ripped out of his hand and given to David. And so one of the things that David had to do is he took kind of his people, his mighty men, and they left the country, all right? And they had moved into the, the territory of the Philistines. And they're living among the Philistines, and they've got their own little village called Ziklag that they're living in, and they're doing their thing there. And the king of the Philistines is going to war and calls David and his men and says, hey, if you live in our, our nation, our, our country, you need to fight with us. And David's like, absolutely, I'm coming with you. And so they show up and there's these other kings that come along and they end up sending David and his men home. But while they've all left the village, they've left their wives back there at the village, all their stuff is there, their kids are there. While they leave to go fight a different battle, some other raiders come in, kidnap all their wives, kidnap all their kids, burn everything to the ground, and then take them away captive. All right, so David and his men, they're out here fighting this other battle or thinking they're gonna fight the battle. They get sent home. They come home to their village and when they come into the village, it's destroyed. Everybody's been kidnapped. Everybody's gone. And as you can imagine, this would be an anxiety-inducing issue, right? This is a major, major problem. And it says there in, in 1 Samuel 30, verse six, look what it says. It says, and David was greatly distressed. And I, I, I don't think that we can understand in, in those two words, greatly distressed, how overwhelmed and overcome David was at this point. And it goes on, it says, for the people spoke of stoning him. They want to kill him. You're our leader. You let this happen. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But look what it says here at the end of this verse. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What did that mean? How did he strengthen himself in the Lord his God? I think what that means is I think that David turned to God, began praying to God and saying, God, you have to get us through this. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix this. I don't know where to go. It's completely out of my control. They may kill me at any moment, but I need you to walk with me and walk with us through this. And I think David continued that prayer until all of the wives and the kids were safely recovered. And they were. And when everybody finally got back and everything was there, it was finally like, thank you, Lord. I prayed through what was going on in this? He found his strength and he found his peace in God. Not just a 30 second prayer. He set his heart and his mind on God and continued to pray all the way through. And as we pray through the things that are pulling at us from the different directions, God begins to bring stillness to the storm. That's what happens. The peace of God surpasses understanding. The reason it passes our understanding is because it doesn't make sense. We can find peace in God in situations of life that used to rattle us, used to give us anxiety, used to give us fear. The situation hasn't changed. 
It's just that the peace of God has come in and filled us. And the peace of God covers the whole person. And so I do want to say that to you out here today. If you're struggling with anxiety, begin with the list, all right? Get those things down, but begin praying through those things. Continue in them in prayer, uh, praying through it with the Lord. Because as it says here in this text, it says, and his peace will guard our hearts and our minds. And that's exactly the sort of protection that we need from the worry and the fear and the anxiety in our lives. We want that protection. We need that protection, that guard um, around our hearts. That's what I've experienced in my life. I mean, if I'm just to share testimony with you, for me, I have found freedom from anxiety and those sorts of fears by the peace of God that has guarded my heart. I'm not impervious, obviously, to anxiety, but there is a guard at my heart and my mind that wasn't there before. And so as we finish, he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? That's good news. And let's push into that peace and experience the abundant life that he has for us. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for your word here today. And I pray, Lord, that my words made sense. I pray, God, that you would be bringing peace to my brothers and sisters this morning. Lord, we recognize that there are things that are always gonna create worry and anxiety and fear in our hearts. We recognize that there are going to be issues, that uh, disagreements that we have with other people, uh, disputes that we have, Lord. We, we understand that that's part of life. It's part of the human condition. You didn't tell us that you would make us something other than human. And, but Lord, you've also given us this promise that you will cover those things with your peace when we turn to you and we look to you and we follow hard after you. And so Lord, as I stand here as a testimony today of someone who has experienced that peace, Lord, I pray that that peace would be poured out on the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters here. If there are any here today that are struggling with anxiety, Lord, I pray that you would bring freedom and you would bring deliverance. Lord, I pray that you would expand their hearts to know how to pray through these places, that they would walk through those valleys with you and that you would bring them on the other side. Bring healing, bring wholeness, bring peace and bring joy. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.